or we're continuing through this um, sometimes tricky part of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, as we look at this whole topic of um, sexual immorality but also marriage and divorce and, uh, and singleness. And uh, we do so um, mindful that here in Bethel Church uh, we have every possible combination of that um, marriage singleness spectrum. We have those who are single uh, and they may be single because they haven't married or they're single because they've been widowed or because they've been divorced. Uh, We also have those who are married. Uh, Some uh, have married for the first time. Others have uh, been through a divorce and have remarried. Um, We have those who are Uh, married as believers and we have those uh, where one spouse is a believer and the other spouse isn't. So we have uh, the full range of of, uh, combinations I suppose you could say and so we come into this to seek wisdom as to what uh, the Lord is saying to all of us but also how we as a church uh, may love one another and have fellowship with one another no matter what our a situation. Let's remind ourselves briefly of the, the two foundational ideas I talked about last week that lie behind these passages on sexuality and marriage. Uh, firstly, we saw that true marriage is the union between Christ and the church. It was because of the Father's plan from before the beginning of time that the Son would enter into creation, that he would take on our flesh and bone, that he would lay down his life to redeem sinners, that he would bring them into the Father's family as his adopted sons and daughters. It's because of that plan that he created human beings, male and female, and he instituted marriage between one man and one woman exclusively for life. And that is the greatest image in creation of this union of Christ and the church. So we're to assess what is right or wrong, good or bad, in terms of human sexuality, not by those simplistic ideas of guilt or shame or brokenness, but by whether it glorifies God by pointing to this glorious image of Christ and the gospel Uh, Secondly, we saw that all of God's commandments have love as their reason and their motivation. We should always say, I want to obey God because I love him and because I want to best love my neighbour. Any other motivation for obedience, whether it's fear of punishment, whether it's a desire to justify ourselves or whether we do it just because that's what's done, Well, that's just legalism. It's only grace in Jesus Christ that will enable us to freely obey in love. Now, we also need to see that Paul's uh, ideas here, they're not actually his ideas. Uh, His instructions are based on the teachings of Jesus. He assumes that his readers know what Jesus' teaching is on marriage. So before we unpack this passage, let's look at 
some of what Jesus has to say about these matters. So Matthew chapter 19, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Very strong words there from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus has given us the standard, the ideal for marriage. And he's done that by reinforcing what the scriptures already taught. From the beginning, God created male and female and marriage was meant to be a lifelong covenant relationship. This is the standard, as I said, that best images Christ and the church, where marriage is permanent and secure. But also it's the best way to love our neighbour, because it is promising to another person exclusive love and faithfulness. So this is the ideal that we should uphold and honour and for which we should work and strive. As Jesus said, let what God has joined together, let no man separate. But then the Pharisees respond, well why then does the law appear to give permission for someone to divorce? Doesn't that make divorce okay? Is this a contradiction? Well, we need to see this exchange that's happening in the context of how Jesus often criticised the Pharisees and the scribes and the way that they were misusing the law. They read the law in order to find a loophole. So they could maintain the external experience of keeping, uh, appearance of keeping the letter of the law but they could avoid the weightier matters of the law. Matters, Jesus says, are matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, they were very good at things like fasting publicly, observing the Sabbath publicly, tithing publicly, even to the point of tithing their spices, but they neglected the spirit of the law, which was to love their neighbour as themselves. And that's demonstrated in how they chose to interpret this law about divorce. They read it as permission for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And there were rabbis around this time who said, 
what's a reasonable thing? Well, if she burns the dinner, yep. Or if he finds someone who's more attractive. That's the kind of reasons rabbis were giving to say it's justified for a man to divorce his wife at the time. And it would just be legitimised by saying, well, it's okay because I've written a certificate of divorce. But as I said, the, the basis of God's law is love. It's not about how I can act to protect my rights and freedoms and preferences, but how should I act to protect the rights and the freedoms of others? The law isn't about giving privilege to the powerful. It's about providing protection for the vulnerable. And in this light, and and when we look at it in the actual context in which that instruction is given in Deuteronomy 24, the certificate of divorce wasn't about giving a man freedom to do as he pleased. It was about ensuring that if a man acted in his own interests, the woman that he divorced would be ensured the freedom to remarry because a woman on her own in those times was one of the most vulnerable in society. The certificate would enable her to be re-included into a household and a family. It would ensure that her dignity was preserved and protected. So Jesus says it's because of the hardness of your hearts that this practice was allowed. The ideal of God's creational design still stands. God still hates divorce. And hypothetically, if humanity had not sinned, then that ideal would have been consistently upheld amongst human beings. However, all people have sinned. All people have fallen short of God's glory, of this ideal standard. And the reality then of sin and its consequences means that relationships, including marriage, will always have some level of dysfunction. And sometimes in all the complexity and the confusion that our sinful hearts create, these relationships deteriorate and they break down in a way that, humanly speaking, sometimes they become irretrievable. That's what we were told would happen in Genesis chapter 3, when the man and the woman were separated from one another and from God because of shame and guilt and fear. God said to the woman, your desire shall be, it says therefore your husband, the word actually means contrary to your husband. Uh, it's the same word that's used when, when Cain had sinned and God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you. So it's a, it's a desire to, to be in control, to be against. Um, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The conflict that both the, the, the pridefulness that our sin 
causes and the shame that it produces means relationships come to an end. Divorce happens in this fallen world. God in his grace and his mercy gave his law not to perfect people but to sinners to show us not just how this ideal should look in an ideal world that's full of sin but also what it looks like in this fallen world where sin abounds. Now see how the disciples respond to Jesus affirming this high ideal of marriage. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So they give the simplistic response. If the standard is so high, then that makes marriage really hard work. And so the solution is, I'll avoid it altogether. That's the one size fits all solution, that's just not get married at all. Now Jesus' response is actually there isn't a simplistic solution. It's not adequate to say either therefore no one should get married or therefore everyone should get married. If someone is married they should see that the ability that they have to remain faithful for life is only theirs because it is given to them by God. You can receive this, Jesus says, if, uh, where is it? If it is given, it's those to whom it is given. But then there are those who are given a different gift and God will enable them to fulfil his calling for them in that area. Now what is a eunuch? Well, it's it's a technical word that was applied to a slave who was put in a role where they were in the inner circle, normally of a ruler or a nobleman. They were in a role that brought them right into the household where they were in contact with the family. And so this slave would be castrated, uh, often from childhood if they were born into slavery, so that he wouldn't be considered a risk around the women of the household and so that he could have no ambitions to assassinate his master and set up his own dynasty because he couldn't have children. Now this was a pagan practice, not a Jewish one, just to be clear. There are some eunuchs in the Bible. The most famous one is the Ethiopian uh, whom Philip met on the road as he was returning back to Ethiopia Uh, He heard the gospel and he became a believer. Possibly too, Nehemiah was a eunuch. Uh, Nehemiah oversaw the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem uh, after the exile. He was probably a eunuch because he was cupbearer 
to the, the king of Persia. He was right there in the inner circle. But because eunuchs obviously never married, never had children, the word came to be used as Jesus uses it here to refer to someone who for whatever reason remained unmarried, maybe in a permanent kind of sense. And he says there are three main reasons why someone would never marry. He says it's because of how they were born or from birth. That could refer to biology, it could refer to simply their life or their family or their religious or cultural situation that they've been born into. He says because they've been castrated, because they are literally a slave, or because they've made a deliberate decision to forego marriage so that they could fulfil the calling that God has for them in his kingdom. Whatever the, the actual specific scenarios Jesus is referring to here, he's saying there are valid reasons for someone to not be married. But note, he doesn't give the reason that the disciples gave. The desire to avoid the responsibility and the hard work that comes with marriage. We can't say, I won't get married because I'm not prepared to take on the responsibility of making a lifelong covenant with another person. So Jesus affirms both marriage and singleness and he calls us to receive whatever the standard is for that state as a gift from God. Now this is the teaching that Paul has as his foundation when he addresses the Corinthians. That's why in verse 10 he says, not I but the Lord, when he's simply affirming what Jesus has said clearly about avoiding divorce. And then he says in verse 12, I not the Lord. When he's addressing a scenario that Jesus doesn't give a specific teaching on. Now he's not implying here that what he says has less authority or should just be taken as mere advice. He's simply saying this is a scenario that Jesus himself did not teach directly on but we can still apply the principles he taught to that scenario. Now, seeing how the Corinthians had the same simplistic response that the disciples did to this high standard. Paul has just said, flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your body whether you're single or married. Their response is, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Just another way of saying it's good then just not to get married. This is another example of uh, what they've, they've already done previously. They've, they've quoted a statement which in, a, in and of itself is technically true, but it's been used to justify a position that isn't true. Last week we saw the idea that the body doesn't matter because it's going to be destroyed and 
uh, only the Spirit would continue, they use that as permission to indulge in gluttony and immorality. But others had come up with a different application to that false belief that the body won't continue and that was that we should live this austere lifestyle, that we should deny all the basic desires of our bodies. We should refuse to find any kind of pleasure in something physical and bodily such as food or sexuality. Was this the solution then to sexual immorality, to gluttony, to materialism? Should we all become celibates? Should we all give away everything we own and just live on a diet of dry bread and water? It sounds extreme to us, doesn't it? But it was seen as a valid option to many at this, that time. In fact, it was that kind of thinking that influenced the development of monasteries uh, within the Christian church. The belief that denying yourself physical comfort and pleasure and even maybe deliberately experiencing pain by punishing yourself would somehow uh, improve your spiritual relationship with God or earn merit with him. Now, Paul warns Timothy to actually watch out for people who taught that kind of thing. He talks about those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything is created, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. See the biblical view of marriage and food here? It's created by God, it's good and we should receive it with thanksgiving. So the answer to the temptation to sexual immorality isn't to insist on an austere culture of abstinence. It's rather the proper use of God's gift of sexuality within the proper context for which God designed it, marriage between a man and a woman. As Paul goes on to say in verses 2 to 5, see here how there's an absolute equality between the husband and the wife in the marriage relationship. The husband gives his wife her rights and she gives him his rights. The husband has authority over the wife's body but so does the wife have authority over her husband's body. Now this kind of equality might seem normal to us but in the first century context this was a radical idea. Sometimes people think Paul was a chauvinist. To the first century people, Paul would have sounded like a feminist. This is a call for mutual respect and honouring of one another as partners made in the image of God, joint heirs of eternal life. So, echoing Jesus, Paul holds this call to the high ideal of marriage. He holds firmly to this idea that marriage reflects Christ and the church. 
but not naive of the fact that as sinners we constantly battle with our weaknesses and we are to accommodate one another in them. But then also echoing Jesus, from verse 6, Paul uses his own situation as unmarried to validate that status. It's good for them to remain single as I am. This goodness here is a creational goodness. In the same way that marriage and food is good. Being unmarried is also good in that way. It's possible for us to make an idol out of marriage. Because we're seeing this glorious image of Christ and the church that marriage gives us, and because of cultural pressures, we may deliberately or unintentionally give the impression that being unmarried is somehow deficient. That if a person is unmarried for whatever reason, that there's something wrong that needs fixing. This can also come from a bit of a misunderstanding of what God said at the beginning, at the creation of men and women. Now in Hebrew, there are two words that are translated into English as man. The well-known one is Adam, which sometimes is used to refer to the male historical person but it's also a generic word. It's, it's big A, uh, big M, man. It means mankind or humanity. So we're told in Genesis 1.27, God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Adam here includes both men and women, created in the image of God, both given then that mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and reign over it. Then in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now this in itself is not a reference to marriage initially. The not good here doesn't refer to a man, a male, being without a wife. Man here is still Adam. It is a reference to a human being living as a solitary individual, without relationship, without human partnership, attempting to, to fulfil the mandates to rule over creation just on their own. So, God designs human beings in such a way that they will be intimately involved in this ongoing uh, creation and formation of human community. So, what happens next? The Lord God calls the deep sleep to fall upon the man, Adam, And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, Adam, 
he made into a young he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now uh, rib here is not the best translation. The woman wasn't made from a small bone, but from the man's side. Some Bible scholars see this almost uh, as if the man was cut in half and then God fashioned one of those halves into the woman. Man here in verses 21 and 22 is Adam. But at the end of verse 23, it's ish, the Hebrew word for a male. The man and the woman, male and female, have an affinity to the level of bone and flesh because the woman was taken out of the man. Marriage then becomes an expression of this affinity. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what we see here is marriage, the marriage relationship is placed at the head, becomes the source or the fountainhead of all other human relationships. As the man and the woman were fruitful and multiplied, other human relationships came about. Parents and child relationships, brothers and sisters and friends, relationships of authority and service. But because marriage is at the fountainhead of all of these other relationships, it means every human being has a connectedness and an affinity with every other human being because we weren't created as independent individuals, all of us just out of the dust, like the first Adam. But we're all in the one family tree. We all have the same parents. We're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. What does that mean? It means that human marriage despite uh, the glorious image it gives us, isn't superior to any other human relationships in terms of functionality. It does include a level of physical intimacy that there isn't in other relationships. And while it is this image of Christ in the church, it doesn't mean that other relationships are to be desired less than marriage. In fact, if you think about it, all good human relationships in some way reflect the nature of the relationship of God and human beings. If you're a child or if you're a parent, then you learn something about what it means to be a child and to know God as your true father. If you're in a relationship that involves authority and service, well, that teaches us what it means to be servants of God, with Christ as our Lord and our Master. 
If you've ever been in a student-teacher relationship, well, that helps us understand what it means to be taught by the Spirit and to be led into all truth. Being friends and companions and siblings, well, that helps us to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I call you my friends, for in all, all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. It helps us understand what it means to say that Jesus was made like his brothers and sisters in every way. So all of these human relationships, marriage, any other kind of relationship, it's all good. It's why I've tried to avoid using the word single rather than the word that's actually used in this text which is unmarried because no human being is meant to be single in the sense of being a solitary individual without relationships. Now, if you're not yet convinced that there's a goodness in being unmarried, you simply have to look at Jesus. He was unmarried. And in his unmarried state, he was in no way deficient in his humanity. If he was deficient by not being married, he wouldn't have been qualified to represent us as the last Adam. And Jesus didn't live an austere, pleasureless life. He enjoyed full and joyful relationships with both men and women, so much so that the part of the pain of his suffering was that he was betrayed by a kiss from a friend, someone he called friend. He was denied by Peter who was in his inner circle of friends. He experienced the pain of seeing his widowed mother grieving as he hung on the cross and he entrusted her to the care of his good friend John. Jesus knew the highs and the lows, the joys and the griefs of deep human relationships all without being married. I've spoken to a number of single people over the years about what it's like to live in a culture where they are generally in the minority. For some there is a, a, a struggle, a desire to be married but without the opportunity or the means. For others the struggle isn't with that or not only with that but also it's with being in a culture in society that idolises sexuality and sexual expression and says you're not a full person unless you are in that kind of relationship. But sometimes even in the church where we can idolise marriage and it can make them feel that if they don't have a spouse or children that they're somehow on the fringe. Some have shared with me about the difficult times such as Christmas and Easter where it's seen as family time 
or even just the weekly cycle of weekends which are seen as time for the family that can feel for them like times that they're actually excluded. Churches often run programs for marrieds and for families but when they do something for singles it's often assumed that oh that's the one you go to if you want to find a marriage partner. Now of course the answer isn't programs is it? If we were to set up a program and a group for every category or a subset of people in our church what we risk communicating to people is that this category is somehow the thing that defines them, that gives them their identity. Now, my marital status as a married man is something that describes the nature of my life and how I live, but what defines me as a person, what gives me my true identity is that I'm a child of the Father, that I am made acceptable and holy and I am loved in Jesus Christ, that I am a member of Jesus' bride, the church. Anything anything else that describes me is really temporary. It's designed to be an image pointing to the reality and the means by which the Father in this life makes me more and more like Jesus in preparation for the next. So what is the answer if it's not programs and groups? Well, it must be praying for and seeking and striving for a culture in the church where we're all fixing our eyes on Jesus and we are uh, seeing everyone through this lens of how we are in relationship to him. Not our marital status, not our age, not our social standing, not our ethnicity, anything else that we might use to categorise and make distinctions and divisions between one another. In this thinking where it's all about Jesus... We ask ourselves, well, how can I encourage my brother and sister, whatever their situation in life, to be magnifying Christ, to be pointing forward by their life to this glorious wedding supper of the Lamb? So for those of us who are married, that looks like striving with God's help, to have our marriage best reflect the reality of Christ in the church. But without so idolising marriage that people think that knowing Christ isn't ultimately and infinitely better than human marriage and sexual relationships. For those of us who are unmarried for whatever reason, that looks like finding your full sufficiency in Christ, in view of the fact that one day anyone in Christ will actually know the full joy of the true marriage when we see him face to face. No one in Christ 
will ever miss out on marriage because the true marriage is to see Christ. For all of us then, it includes neither excluding or including someone because of their marital status, whether we do it deliberately or just in the way we talk and act and arrange how we interact and and meet with one another here on Sundays or at other times. It means being there with non-judgmental care for those who are struggling in their marriage and for those who are struggling with their singleness. It means celebrating the rich diversity of relationships that we've been given, all to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all your good gifts to us and most of all for the gift of relationship with one another. Thank you that you said it's not good for us to be alone. And we ask that you will enable us with the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to rejoice and to be thankful and to celebrate all of the relationships that you have given us, both here in the church and in our families, uh, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our sibling uh, relationships, um, in our workplaces, uh, whatever, Father, the opportunity for human connection you have given us in our lives. We ask that we will receive it as a gift from you and in all, that, all the ways that we relate to one another, we ask that we might glorify you in the way we do that and that in all we do we might be able and willing to point others to that glorious hope we have of seeing Christ our bridegroom appear and take us to be with you forever. We pray this in his name. Amen.